We've been uh, focusing for these few weeks on uh, really opening to and recognizing and opening to our own karma, looking at this whole issue of karma, um, both as it relates, a little bit as it relates to action, you know, where uh, what we do brings results, but also the, uh, what's really looked at as uh, the, re- the results of past actions, which is kind of the, the stuff that comes up in the mind all the time, the things that are the patterns and habits that we operate out of, the way that we are, really, you know, the dominant states of mind, dominant reactive patterns, even to, to a great extent, um, our physical appearance, the, the way that we carry ourselves, all of that is... Um, according to the Buddhist teaching, sort of an, an outcome, a fruit of past actions. So uh, I didn't want to just deal, like, what, what happens with this theme is that, you know, usually what happens is people start to look at all of the things that they don't like about themselves, you know. Like we, we always think of karma in terms of bad karma, you know, unwholesome karma, the unskillful behaviors that are so highly conditioned in us. And, and that's important. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to make too light of it because it's important to see that and to work with that. And a lot of meditation practice is just that. It's seeing this constant outpouring of um, past actions. You know, of, literally, it could be the busyness of the day, the, the lack, the heedlessness throughout the day, and then you go and sit. And, you know, it's like a truck that's come crashing to a stop, you know, and all the things that are on the back of the truck just come pouring out into your lap, you know. (laughs) And so that's what you sit with in your meditation practice, you know. But um, it's very important also to look at the good and the wholesome and the skillful. And I think this can get missed, mostly, really mostly because we're so hard on ourselves, you know, we're just... Whether we like it or not, we, we, we tend to be very self-critical and uh, can even have a great deal of self-loathing, don't like the way that we are. So it's uh, how are you going to soften around all of that? How are you going to open your heart and, and, and get a little soft and cushy? Because that's what it takes, really, to be able to receive, to be able to open to our experience completely. So... Um, I wanted to uh, invite us tonight to kind of look at this side of practice, which is really contemplating our goodness and fanning the flame of our goodness even. You know, in the, in the same way that one tunes into difficulty, we also have to tune into those moments when we're very happy, <laughs> when things are going well, when things feel good. And, and so that, because that's very much a part of the conditioning as well. It's like, if it if it's... If it feels right, then and we're not paying attention to that, then we're not learning from it. It's like the heart needs to learn to incline towards wholesome and skillful actions. That's part of it. It's not just receding away from doing harm. It's also a movement towards what it is that is skillful and appropriate. Can you feel that? It's very, very important and very much a part of our meditation practice. So, um, you know, just to override any tendencies that you might have to think that this is like conceited or self-absorbed or something like that, like I'm going to look at my kindnesses, you know, that uh, it's it's a very good and uh, helpful thing to do. So, you know, one might say, well, yeah, you know, uh, 
uh, I do this meditation practice and I'm trying to be good, you know, but, um, you know, I'm not always able to be that way. Or, you know, we might have this sense that, um, you know, we come to this meditation practice and one wants to feel uh, a, a good, you know, feel good about the fact that you have enough wisdom to know to do this. That's huge right there, that you have enough wisdom and staying power to come, you know, to spend your Thursday night like this instead of some other way, basically saying, I want to wake up. And this seems to be something that's going to help me to wake up. So, you know, you might look at that and think, well, yeah, but, you know, I do a lot of other things that aren't very skillful. And so the effort is to just kind of recognize that there's a whole mix mash of reasons that one might come to uh, this practice and come to events like this, Uh, but to really acknowledge that within that mix, because it's always a mix, within that mix there is a lot of wisdom and there is a lot of goodness already. Start there and begin by fanning the flame of that. And and the reason that I point this out, as I said, is that I think there's just so many... uh, so, so much strong conditioning to berate ourselves, you know, and we want to begin a process or at least add to a process of turning this, this kind of thing around. It's just not helpful. It's just not useful. Have you ever really changed for the better by beating up on yourself, you know? So trying to break that habit just a little bit. So um, one thing, um, just to reflect on, I was noticing this the other morning as I was putting some thoughts together, that um, when I woke up, uh, there was the, the first feeling that I had that morning was kind of like a heaviness, kind of like a thud. I don't know if you ever greet the day like that, but it's like, you know, you wake up and say, oh. <laughs> you know, I have this to do and that to do and this place to go, or you think about something that, uh, happened and, and you can wake up with this sort of heavy, dreaded, dreading energy. And just as I lay there, then I heard a bird singing. And my heart just turned and, you know, my attention went to that bird. And um, the, the singing created this lightness, you know, this kind of happy feeling in the heart. And, you know, I, I, I had the wherewithal, actually, to just notice that. Well, wow, did you see that? That Notice how quickly it can change. That was one thing that was interesting. But the important thing, the thing that impressed me was what a different feeling there was in my being from to, ah, you know, amazing transition, amazing openness and receptivity just from um, focusing for an instant, on gladness. This is very, very important. This is a very, very important quality to have, um, to tune into. Buddha talked a lot about the significance of joy and happiness in practice. And, you know, I think we need to really tune into those moments when it's actually there when it actually arises of its own accord, and let that make a mental impression in the heart, in the mind. This is what that experience feels like. 
so that this process of beginning to move towards it can take place. Can you feel that? It's like it's all part of learning. It's a, you know, waking up is self-taught. <laughs> you know, it comes out of experiencing the pain of harm and experiencing the happiness and the lightness of harmlessness and kindness and goodness. And then the heart, move, we move towards that. We actually gravitate towards that. So can you feel this? Both of these are very, very important. So it's like this. We, t- we turn the minds to the wholesome and the happy. Uh, one, of the, one of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, um, uh, in one of the Buddha says, um, whatever a person frequently thinks upon and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And that's what we're talking about. How is the mind inclining? So one way that I like to talk about this is um, most of you are familiar with the five precepts where um, we take certain precepts for uh, for, um, just to kind of guidelines for our conduct, for our behavior. And these are phrased in a way that says, you know, I resolve to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. I resolve to refrain from taking things that don't belong to me. I resolve to refrain from sexual misconduct. I resolve to refrain from incorrect speech, unkind or hateful or frivolous speech. I resolve to refrain from intoxicants that uh, lead to carelessness. And and this is very important. It's part of the, um, you know, in a way, it's like a, a framework for living that um, we not only contemplate, but that Buddhists actually commit themselves to, you know, living in this way. And I think it's very important. But I wanted to look. I like to look at this in in terms of the flip side of that. So there's this sort of a resolve to refrain kind of language. But there is a flip side of that, which means that I was, you know, I, I am interested in, I wish to cultivate the positive aspect of what it is that I'm also, that I'm also wishing to refrain from. So that the way that this would play out with each of these is really worth contemplating. Like the first precept, which says resolving to refrain from doing harm through body, speech, or mind. So what does that look like in terms of cultivation? You know, the effort here is to cultivate, to actively nourish, nurture moments and opportunities for a certain harmlessness. You know, to notice that, and especially to notice those times when we're already being harmless. I think this is very, very important in our meditation practice. So that... You know, you might notice that inclination, for example, to, to do harm in some way, you know, through body, speech, or mind, and then have the wherewithal to abort that. That moment right there is very, very important, where you tune in to a fact that something made us change our mind. Something made us turn from an impulse to behave unkindly and turn it around, and to at least cut that off, if not actually turn it completely in another direction. These we do we have this happen a lot throughout the course of the day, 
And the effort here then is to just to begin to, to tune into moments like this. Or just moments where there is a, a very um, harmless, loving quality in the heart. You know, one time when I was up at um, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, where I also teach, there, there were, there's a lot of deer around there and um, a lot of chipmunks. And we were all in class one day, and somebody was uh, standing up because her legs hurt. And w- you know, while she was standing, she noticed that there, was a, uh, there were a couple of deer in the field. And uh, everybody just jumped up out of the seats and went over, you know, and we're like, oh, you know, hi, little deer, you know, <laughs> and just kind of pouring out this beautiful, um, loving sentiment towards these uh, wild animals that we encountered, you know. And I thought, oh, that, that is beautiful. I mean, just to hold moments like that where, you know, they're timid, they're scared, they're frightened, and uh, one is wishing them well. One is, you know, ensuring that there'll be no harm done here. You know, and you see this especially like with the chipmunks who have to be the most nervous creatures on the, on the face of the planet, you know. They're just all over the place. And if you try to do walking meditation there, and, and uh, you know, the, the chipmunks are a major distraction. But they're, But you can watch, like even in the process of doing the walking meditation, how, you know, when I see them, I, I would watch myself go... Um, you know, like something like, oh, you know, oh, be careful. Okay, don't, don't, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> I'm not going to hurt you. You know, you're in, it's safe here. You know, you're you're in a very comfortable territory, and and wish that that you know that there was some way that one could ease their tension. You know, ease their anxiety. But these mo- these are the kinds of moments I'm talking about. Just noticing those, letting your letting yourself see. That that came from me. You know that ki- that harmlessness, that kindness, that came from me. <laughs> I have to see that, and feel that. Now that can be a lot easier to do with animals than with humans. <laughs> Put humans into the picture, and it gets, you get a whole other story going on here. But I found that while it's often true that when I have an impulse. Uh, to think ill of somebody, to do harm in any way. Um, it's not always as easy to offset that. You know, there's a lot more going on in human interactions. But what I began to notice as I would look at this is just to try to get a sense of when there is difficulty in relationship, uh, why am I even seeing it that way? You know, what is the rub? You know, and the rub I began to see is coming from a place that sort of knows, already knows in my heart that this isn't necessary, that we can get along better, that we can learn to relate to each other from kindness. And that, even if I can't always do it, the fact that I can understand that and the fact that it is my wish that goodness or kindness be the standard in my relationships, that's good enough. You know, if, you can, if we can at least capture that impulse, that's good enough. Let's see that in our own hearts. So that's the, um, just looking a little bit at the flip side of the first uh, precept. The second one has to do with resolving to refrain from taking things that don't belong to us. 
So, uh, you know, obviously it's pointing at sort of piggy and uh, self-absorbed behaviors, you know, greedy, always looking for one's own gratification. You know, that it's, it's an effort to notice that impulse in the heart and the mind and just feel what that feels like. <laughs> it doesn't feel very good. And gradually over time, we begin to soften by, by noticing um, this contraction around having things and getting things. But now the flip side of this is sort of cultivating or noticing when there is a contentment, when things as they are are fine, it's good enough, you know. And that that will happen a lot throughout the course of the day. You know, uh, if if you can notice it, then that automatically begins to fan the flame of it. Uh, one way that we see this a lot is like I mentioned the retreat on Saturday. Um, people experience this a lot on retreat where you go away for a few days, a day, a few days, a week. And uh, amazingly, you know, you find out that you can do with a lot less <laughs> than you think you have to have. You know, one, one time my teacher, you know, invited us to contemplate what does it take to be a human being, you know. What does it actually take? You know, it doesn't take much. Buddha talked about the requisites, the four requisites: food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. You know, and invited us to contemplate that. And and so when you go on retreat or go away and, and live in a more simple environment, you know, one of the common experiences that people will report on is that uh, they. They, they were so, it was so easy just to do, to survive, to get along with so little. It really created a, a, a happiness in their heart. I remember one woman at, at the end of her retreat saying that, you know, she just, she didn't know this about herself. <laughs> she thought she needed all this stuff, you know, and to find out that she didn't, that was a great, that was news to her. And it was a, it was really, it made a very big impression. You know, like the wrong thing to do would be to go out and then start trying to get rid of things, you know, out of some idea of living more simply or trying to be more contented. That's not what I'm pointing to. It's more just noticing moments when it's okay. It's good enough. You know, you're petting the dog or sitting and having a glass of iced tea on the patio. And there's not a lot of movement in the mind towards something other, something else. You know, like, like there's always there's always other. But there will be moments when that's not happening. And so the effort here is to really tune into that, to begin to become aware that sometimes we we actually are experiencing contentment <laughs> and and simplicity, you know. It's good enough. And this kind of noticing makes these impulses to be piggy and greedy and always gratifying self diminish. Can you feel that? Because that's a, you, be, you begin to experience more consciously and more directly what it feels like to just be simple and content. And that's one of the best teachers that we have. So you, you, we can incline towards it. So by noticing these times when the heart doesn't contract, you know, when it lets go, 
we're actually teaching our heart through direct experience what is the more desirable state. Yeah. Waking up is, like I said, it's self-taught. <laughs> we just, it's all in the noticing. It's all in the bringing moments like these conscious. The, the third precept has to do with sexual misconduct, which is really not uh, engaging in activities that are, do harm to oneself or to another person or to a third person. That's the, the general way that it's translated. But I like to look, take a much broader brushstroke on this, um, especially when we look at it in this way of cultivating. You know, basically to to cultivate relationships, all relationships in our lives um, that are founded on mutual respect. That there isn't this sense of um, what's, what's in it, what can you do for me? You know, mutual gratification. Um, that, uh, you know, always looking to, an, to each other for some kind of... Um, uh, just kind of a, a, a either a moment of gratification or sort of an ongoing thing. You know, I, I know when I started to look at this precept myself in my own practice, you know, I, I began to realize that I, I wasn't. I was try. I was hard pressed to think of how many of the relationships in my life at that time were, um, you know, just didn't have some sense of this. It was sort of like that thing that you do that makes me feel good, keep doing it, you know, that kind of feeling. Like there's something in this relationship that makes me feel good, and that's really what it's about. I went, wow, you know. Really taking a hard look at that and and trying to um, override that or find another basis for relating to people. Um, recently, I had the opportunity to interview um, a number of monks, and uh, we were it was, there was a number of us, and we were asking them questions about their life and what it is about their life that is uh, so conducive and so helpful. And uh, one of the things that came up, obviously, was celibacy. And uh, so we were asking one of these senior monks about his experience living um, a celibate life for at this time it was like 30 years, you know, and. Um, he said, well, at the beginning, it was very easy. And then it became very hard. And then it became easy again. But that took a, lo- a, a long number of years. And the main thing that he noticed was that when the energy, this, this sort of sexual energy, which is really a, a, a put in a broader context, this self-gratifying energy, um, was... When, when his relationships with people was not focused on what was in it for him or what way that he could become gratified through the relationship, then what he found was what began to replace it was the, what Buddha called the beautiful states, the heavenly abodes, that when it wasn't you know me and it and what's in it for me, it became you. <laughs> You know, compassion and how can I serve you and how, what can I do for you and how can I be kind to you? You know, it, it began to uh, clearly, he noticed it, it, it was like the, 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 the computer screen shifted, you know, where the background became foreground and the foreground became background. 
you know. And um, it, it, he, could, he said he actually began to feel the energy shifting from sort of a bodily focus, you know, gratifying the body focus to a heart focus, you know. And, and, and even in his abdomen, it would move up. You know, the energy was completely coming from a different place. So just noticing what that felt like in terms of relating to people versus this other um, more self-absorbed perspective. I like that, you know. And, and um, it, when I uh, talk to the monks and nuns or, or examine or observe, learn from their lifestyle, I mean, there's a lot of things in their lifestyle that I'm not going to adopt, you know. We're, we're householders, we're lay people, we're not going to... Uh, live the celibate life, perhaps. But there was something in this, you know, sans the celibacy, that was very, very important. You know, how can I relate to people in a way that is not so self-absorbed, so so body-based? So the, the fourth one has to do with um, resolving to speak uh, the truth, to speak honestly, and uh, making the effort to refrain from speech that is not uh, honest, uh, that is harmful or malicious, uh, and this is this is a this is a big one <laughs> for most people. A lot of people have said they've practiced this in their lives, even if they just take it for a short period of time. It's uh, it's very revealing to say how much of our speech is filled with um, just sort of jabs and digs and. Or it's just frivolous and totally unnecessary. Or it's out and out not true, you know, out and out dishonest. So the the effort here, I think, looking at the flip side of that, is to pick up those hesitations again where we don't do that. And, you know, you can notice these um, many times throughout the day. I, I might start a sentence one way, literally, and... Notice it's like it's like a, a, a railroad track getting shifted, you know, so that the train can go in another direction, right? And the, it's like the the impulse is up, the speech is actually beginning to come out of my mouth, and something shifts, and it, it's about to be something harmful or useless, and it, it will just shift. It will just begin to write itself, and I've noticed that that's happening just as a result of tuning in to what it feels like to speak well. To, you know, certainly I've seen in my own mind incredible tendency, basically from um, family dynamics and what have you, just always jabbing each other, you know, always saying something critical or just these subtle little jabs. They come out all the time. And what does it feel like to not do that? What does it feel like? And getting it from the experience of that, you know, it's huge. So I, I also look at this as sort of beginning to, to speak the truth about what I see in myself. And that kind of dovetails on what I was just saying, where, um, you know, what are the mind states that I see arise in me? Which ones are dominant? Good and bad. But definitely tuning into the ones that are less than desirable and finding a way in my own heart to be honest about that. And I've found that by doing that, that kind of honesty is actually the energy of cultivating an impartiality 
and an equanimity, an openness that allows for all of what's going on, good and bad. That's honest. And the energy of that is fabulous. It's like from that place, then one ceases to take exception to what is. You know, over time, you gradually stop that impulse to always be wanting something to be some other way. Even when it comes down to me, my own karma, you know, my own patterns and habits of speech and action, can I find a way to be okay with that? That has to be at the basis of any kind of change that's going to happen through this kind of practice. Can you feel that? It's like if we're hating it, even if we hate it just a little bit, if we're resisting it or not being honest about what we're seeing, that's the one thing that will guarantee that it'll be back, that we'll keep behaving that way. So just noticing um, this kind of uh, critical honesty about ourselves in a positive way. Noticing the good, too. And and noticing that it's not always difficult. It's not always bad. It's like there's hot, there's cold. There's an inhale, there's an exhale. You know, it's like this one whole aspect of ourselves we push out. Can we let that in? And can that be okay? This is honest, accepting, receiving speech. And you find, I think you find that uh, there's just what cu- gets cultivated over time is like a natural ease. It's like, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, less and less surprised by what I see in myself, certainly, but in other people, too. It's fine. You know, this is the, we're, we're not awake. We're doing the best we can. And can we find some peace around the things that we see? And this last one has to do with um, refraining from um, in, indulging or um, overindulging in, in intoxicants or drugs or difficulty, uh, um, things that cause us to be heedless or not to be able to attend to what's going on. And, you know, the broad brush stroke on this one is really to, uh, I think, to tune in more to any kind of behavior and I put solidly in this uh, precept that compulsive behaviors, where we just get locked into a compulsive pattern of behavior and can't seem to snap out of it. You know, so that behaviors like this, uh, you're not, we're not really greeting each moment new, greeting each moment fresh. But also to look at things like, um, you know, computer games or television or, or things like this, where it, when we are caught up too much in it, that we can't be heedful. You know, we, we're just, uh, it's like the, the mind gets on a, uh, a, a, into a dull groove, into an inattentive groove, and this kind of behavior will condition that. And, you know, you, there's no hope of being alert or awake or, or seeing what's going on. And actually, I've, I've actually included in this more and more now too, just tuning into the experience of not doing that, but also of what, it fe- what, what are the things that make me alert? What are the things that conduce to my being alert and awake? You know, I, I, it's amazing that it took meditation to help me to realize that I needed to get a good night's sleep, <laughs> that I needed to eat moderately, you know. 
things like this, that certain foods would really dull my mind. Certainly eating in excess would dull it. Amazing, but it's like as an idea one gets that. But as a direct experience, it's very different. To actually, after, you know, in a moment, after you refrained from eating five more bites because you've had a sense that you're actually full, to really tune into that moment. <laughs> you go, oh, this feels really good. <laughs> you know, it feels great not to overeat. That's wonderful. It feels great not to be forcing myself to stay up at night because uh, I just don't want to go to bed. You know, it feels great to get up in the morning, even though it would be nice to to linger there. It feels actually feels better to get up because my mind is much more alert and awake than if I kind of linger in dull and dreamy states. It's like, I have to learn that. (laughs) You you have to learn it by actually seeing the experience of it. So it's kind of looking at these kinds of things, tuning into those moments when we're happy, when there's kindness, when there's goodness, when there's harmlessness, when there's generosity, all of this. Just really getting a sense of it for ourselves. There's this wonderful sutta I'd like to close with where um, the Buddha... uh, Talks, is talking to his son Rahula and there's a number of suttas where he's, he's talking to his son and I particularly love these because you know when you think about it he's, it's like he's giving his son his inheritance you know he's, uh, and it, he has special little advice for him in these suttas so this is one where he's giving his son um, the meditation uh, instructions in the meditation practice um, and teaching him how to refine his uh, intention. And um, so he says, he tells him, in essence, you know, to, to use his actions as a mirror for reflecting qualities within his mind. So he says that each time before he acted, he was to reflect on the result that he expected from the action and to ask himself, is this going to lead to harm for myself or others or not? And if it wasn't going to lead to harm, uh, then he could do it. But if it was harmful, then he shouldn't do it. Just cut it off right there. If it wasn't, he could go ahead. But that's not where he leaves it. And then he says, um, you know, he cautions him, actually, don't, to leave, don't leave it at that. He said, while you're in the process of acting on that behavior, then ask yourself, um, if there were any unexpected bad consequences of that behavior. And um, if there were, then he should stop. And if not, then he could carry on. But then again, he doesn't leave it there. He says, now, having completed the action, to look and see, you know, now that it's done, were there any bad uh, unexpected consequences? Was there any harm that came? Can you feel the thoroughness of the looking? It's beautiful. And um, if there is uh, harm, then to hold that in the mind, to reflect on that for a moment, because that moment was going to be what was going to help him not do it again in the future. You know, to really just linger with that. And if there wasn't any harm, if it was, then he should take, this is important, he should take great joy 
in being on the right path and he should continue in his training. Don't you love that? <laughs> it's beautiful. Take great joy in the fact that you didn't do harm. Didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. So I hope these uh, thoughts are helpful for tonight. I think it's important to reflect on goodness and how to fan the flame of it in our practice. So we have a few minutes. Do you have some thoughts of your own or perhaps some questions? Yes. Right. Exactly. Using pain and pleasure to 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 wake up. Yeah, it's like I, I, that's a very good point. Thank you. I I, I see the the meditation practice really as um, turning these uh, turning that in the interest of freedom, and really recognizing that it's actually these this experience of pleasure and pain, which Buddha t- talked to as what he talked about this as. Um, the, why the human birth is so fortunate because we have this mix and we can use it to wake up so that um, literally you tune into your own behaviors to the conditions of your mind to, uh, this, to speech and um, experience for ourselves what is painful and what is pleasant that's why I say the Buddha is the ultimate pleasure seeker you know, if you if you tune in, the experience of harmlessness, kindness, generosity, respect, non-intoxicating, non-indulging, it uh, all feels very good. <laughs> and that's what that's what you're using, just as you're describing. Yes. Yes. Can it be? Can it uh, be the case that um, you're overdoing it, sort of? Um, yeah. Yes, I think that's a good point to keep tuning in. And one, uh, it's interesting because one of the things I've witnessed a lot um, going to the monasteries, which are all based in uh, Thai culture, where there's a lot of emphasis on the link between generosity and attaining merit which is like um, sort of like a bank account. You know, the more, that you, the more that you do, the bigger your bank account gets so that when you die, you have a happy rebirth, you know. And this is the way this particular aspect of the teachings is taught there. It's a little off, you know. Uh, there's certain, it's right in one sense, but the way that it's taught in this culture um, actually breeds a certain excessive generosity, <laughs> if, if that's possible. To the, the point where you've seen, I've seen people who um, give everything away and then don't take care of their family's needs. So that ends up, if you examine that, you can actually um, be very attached to the idea of generosity, but not actually tuning in very well to the experience of it. Because if you were tuning in in those instances, you would see the harm that would be being done, you know. So it's very it's it's important to discern 
I think that's kind of what you're pointing to, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, um, one doesn't want to do it to the point where uh, there, there is harm. If there's harm, then it's, it's not uh, the quality that we're looking for. You know, there's this one little Thai woman I, I worked with all the time at the monastery. She was, you know, she was like that, but she, she, was, she was not really taking care of herself. You know, she would spend always, it was lovely. On the one hand, it was like lovely. You, you learn a lot from observing that kind of behavior and being around it. She would just, she was so devoted and she would just do anything. She spent all of her evenings preparing things to bring to the monastery, you know, and these big, uh, they, they would come up on these double-decker buses with the buses loaded with gifts and offerings, you know, and it, which is all very beautiful. One has to take care that it's not, um, you know, that she would do it to the point where she wasn't putting food on her own table, you know. That's not good. I find that there's a large part of my mind which uh, greatly resists examining my behavior Mm. microscopically before I do it. So, any anything you could say about that would be useful. Yes, examining behavior before, during, and after. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the message that comes through in the sutta makes it uh, sound like it's something that's very um, deliberate and conscious and there's a lot of effort in it. And I, I'm with you. When I start to feel that, ugh, you know, I, get, I contract. But I think that actually what it's pointing to is something much more subtle. That there, if you tune in, there is already a reflective awareness that's there. There's a, there's a way that without thinking about it, without making ourselves do it, we already know. And I think it's a lot more about tuning into that. Like just, it, it's very soft. It's very subtle. And it's kind of like sanding, fanning the flame of that sense of um, presence, of a, a, a certain presence with our experience. That if you're connected with it, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to do anything. You, it's there. You know it. Do you know what I mean? It's much softer that way. Yeah, I find like um, I was talking the other day about um, practice. I experience it very much like a dance. And um, it's, it's sort of like connecting with um, what our experience is and just kind of moving with it flowing with it and being as attentive as you can to what it is it actually is. It's like noticing this dance partner, you know, behaves this way, this dance partner behaves that way. And it's much softer that way, you know. It's uh, it's about connecting. It's about feeling experience. And that's quite subtle. There's, there's, and, and, and it takes a, a stillness. So, you know, work with it that way. That's the effort. Mm.